New details today in the grisly murders of a local family found earlier this week. Police have released this photo of Christopher Miller, the missing 13-year-old son of William and Penny Miller. The Millers, along with their younger son, were found stabbed inside their home. And police now are asking for any information that could lead to Christopher's return or the apprehension of any suspects involved in this vicious multiple murder and child abduction. Welcome to Now Playing's bonus retrospective series of Sinister. Don't worry, Daddy. I'll make you famous again. Hosted by Stuart. You look like a reasonable man. You do. Are you a reasonable man? Justin. You're a real man of the people. And Arnie. Yes. You have done some crazy shit in the past, but this definitely takes the cake. This podcast may contain detailed plot spoilers and harsh language. I find this to be an extremely bad taste. Listener discretion is advised. Have a nice morning with your murder victims. Today we're discussing Sinister, starring Ethan Hawke, Julia Relance, Fred Thompson, Vincent D'Onofrio, directed by Scott Derrickson. This is the Now Play co-host who's got boogie fever. Arnie. Stewart in LA. And this is podcast host so-and-so. Hey, everybody, it's <laughs> Justin. <laughs> Justin, it's yeah. been a while. Yes, I'm back. I get to hop in with some horror finally. Oh, my God. Are you sure you don't want to talk about robots or 80s cheese? <laughs> I mean, that, that last time we spoke, I think it was a short circuit fest. But We uh, keep having calls for Flight of the Navigator. <laughs> <laughs> oh, jeez. suppose that one has my name written all over it, huh? Oh, uh, maybe. <laughs> but, uh, you know, why are we even doing Sinister? It wasn't on our schedule, but surprise, we decided, I think... Because with the new Marvel movie, Doctor Strange, coming out, we wanted to do an extra show kind of tying into that. And Arnie, I think you were the one that said you wanted to learn a lot more about its writer-director, Scott Derrickson. Yeah, well, also, around Halloween, we always like to really fill your trick-or-treat bag with a couple extra things. And, you know, we're doing a lot of horror on our donation drive right now. So we just want to take this opportunity to remind you if you enjoy the show we do and these bonus shows we love to put out, you can hear 16 bonus horror movie reviews. If you head to nowplayingpodcast.com, click the banner at the top, we're doing the entire Fly series, eight horror movies from 1986, and then three reanimator films. So if you like horror and you really just want to help out our show, support our show, and you treat us, we'll trick you and give you a whole bunch of podcasts. And yeah, when looking at what to do horror-wise this Halloween, you know, looking really for a one-off, we ended up with a two-off. I did want to know more about Scott Derrickson. Now, Now Playing has reviewed a Scott Derrickson film before. If you go way back in the archives, I think you need Mr. Peabody in the Wayback Machine there. But The Day the Earth Stood Still was reviewed by Brock and Alicia way back in 08. Yeah, I didn't review that film. You didn't review that film. None of the current hosts that do now playing review that film. But there is a podcast about it. And I don't remember. Were they kind? I saw it. I remember just being kind of meh about it. I never watched the films. So I listened to their review to see, is that something I should prioritize? 
And back then, we were a spoiler-free show. That was a while ago. Yeah. Yeah, that's when they were like 15, 20-minute episodes. They gave it two not-recommends, so... (laughs) Yeah. You know, I'm not that crazy about the original, though. I'll be honest. I know that's heresy, but I'd actually rather watch the remake, I think, than the original. But just not a fan on on either way. I thought they did an okay job for an outdated property. And I had seen two Scott Derrickson films before, for fun, the first Urban Legends Final Cut. Ooh. I think he only wrote that, to be fair. True, true. But he did direct Hellraiser Inferno, the direct-to-video fifth Hellraiser film, the one that started the direct-to-video anthology series. He wrote and directed that back in 2000. So... I think I needed something after two not recommends for Day the Earth Stood Still and he made Hellraiser Inferno. I needed something to give me hope. And when I kept reading all these articles about Doctor Strange, the movie that kept coming up is Sinister helped get him that deal. Absolutely. I mean, yeah, if you want to know why he is directing this bazillion dollar budgeted Marvel movie. Well, I think Guillermo del Toro turned them down and they wanted to get a guy with horror genre cred. And this guy coming off Sinister. Yeah, this is a very popular movie as far as horror in the last 12, 15 years. I feel like this is always a title mentioned in the top 10 horror films of the last decade. That strikes me as a little bit strange that they would pinpoint somebody like this for Doctor Strange. Because I don't get a horror vibe off of the previews I've seen for Doctor Strange. I get more of a magic and other universe type of thing going on, but not horror. Inception, maybe, but not horror. Right. (laughs) If you watched the TV movie from 1978, there was definitely a lot more. Getting an official DVD release, I might add. Oh, good for them. Yeah, I I do think that is a way to treat the property, but I agree. Nothing that I've seen indicates that that's exactly what they're going to go for. But I, you know, who knows? We could all be surprised. I'm sure there's a lot of stuff we haven't seen yet in the trailers, and maybe it does require... It looks a little bit more scary than Ant-Man, at the very (laughs) least. (laughs) A little bit more on the mystical side, for sure. Yeah. And yet they seem like very similar movies, but we'll find that out here in very, very soon. But yeah, I was interested in going back and seeing what he'd done that got him this fame. Looking through his resume, the one movie I would really care to see but haven't, I wonder if either of you had, was The Exorcism of Emily Rose. He talks a lot about that one on the commentary and things. I kind of avoided movies with exorcism in the title, having seen the actual exorcist, so. That's kind of where I fall on that, too. You know, it kind of piqued my interest, but I never really made it around to checking it out. And for the same reason, it's like exorcist movies have... Been here and done that for a while now. Yeah, I saw like half of it and I didn't finish it. And it wasn't totally the movie's fault. I think I was like, you know, doing other things and like I had to go. But I guess it's telling I never decided to finish the film either. I usually don't walk out on a movie and I just never got around to seeing it. You know, it's much more of a legal thriller than you might think. There's a whole lot less pea soup being spewed on the walls than it is like Laura Linney in court. That's what I got out of the bonus features for Sinister, so it actually piqued my interest. But being a bonus show, we did these pretty quickly. I did not have time to go and watch his entire oeuvre. I hadn't even heard of Devil's Knot, and I've heard of Deliver Us from Evil, but 
never had an interest. Now, of course, this is also a return for us to Blumhouse, one of the big powerhouses of the horror industry that has come up in the last decade, and largely because of films like Sinister, but they had already made their mark. By this point, by the time Sinister came out in 2012, they had already had the first Insidious, and they had four Paranormal Activity movies under their belt. So they were already established. And they obviously had bought themselves a thesaurus, right? Insidious, Sinister generic, bland, dangerous-sounding names. <laughs> well, the difference is, this one is R, and Insidious is PG-13. Although I think they were originally shooting for PG-13, but uh, I definitely think once we get into talking about some of the, the acts uh, that happened in this movie, it's just not something you could ever sell to an under-18 crowd. Yeah, I almost wonder if this movie could have dropped the guise of trying to get in under the PG-13 and maybe just went all the way for it and went hard R. Might have helped out in some spots. Yeah, Blumhouse, though, is big on that PG-13 safe horror that when they get their R's, they like to get them for intensity, not for multiple uses of the word fuck and huge gore. And, you know, Blumhouse is a studio that we haven't entirely, I haven't entirely enjoyed. There we go. (laughs) (laughs) I I would say universally, though, the Insidious films... You like Purge. We've never reviewed Purge, but what we've reviewed of them, Lords of Salem, for Christ's sake, oh my God, that was awful, and the Insidious films, and you have made several disparaging comments towards the Paranormal Activity series. Now, I would like to review The Purge sometime. It's the one series of theirs that, I mean, I went to see election year in theaters this year, and yet it was still less frightening than our actual election. But I didn't feel good knowing I was going to watch another Blumhouse Haunted House film. I just, oh God, are we going down this road again? Well, I'd seen this one. I vetted this one. I uh, I liked it. I saw it on video. I had read a lot of positive things, did not go to the movie theater, but I also liked Insidious. So when this came out on DVD, I decided to throw it on and thought that it was even better than Insidious, but hadn't thought much about it since. Didn't see the sequel, didn't need to know a whole lot more. I just remember it had a really eerie vibe. And I came into this not knowing for sure if I had seen it or not. I think most of that's just because I confused the title Sinister and Insidious, got those two conflated. And it turns out that I hadn't seen this, but I have seen Insidious. So I came into this new. I knew nothing about this film. I didn't know Ethan Hawke starred in it. I didn't know it was going to be somewhat of a crime thriller. I knew nothing coming in. I just... But I felt I knew everything, right? There was going to be some demon. There were going to be some jump cuts, some loud sting scares, and some things moving without any reason why they'd move. Do you not remember it coming out? It it made money. I think it made $77 million worldwide and well over half of that here in the U.S. How many of these horror movies come out, especially with the Blumhouse logo at the top, that I try not to pay attention to? <laughs> I'm not anti-Blumhouse. And you said I disparaged the Paranormal Activity series. I've only seen one of them. I thought it was overhyped, is what I would say about that. But what they try to do is just... You know, they keep it low stakes. 
they're going to only throw about two, three million dollars at a project. And if it's a hit, great, we'll make another one. And if it's not, oh, well, we're not going to lose our shirt over it. And so Sinister, I think, you know, it was just something that they had pitched to them that they were like, okay, Scott Derrickson's done some horror and he's going to work with my good friend, Ethan Hawke. Let's go ahead and, you know, throw three million at this. But it surprised everyone. I mean, it got good critical notices and made a whole lot of money and so far has one sequel. And this came together pretty quick. I did listen to the commentary and from the time that co-writer Robert Cargill first just floated the idea to Scott Derrickson to the time this was in theaters was under a year. They didn't have a full script. They wrote it in like five weeks. They had no cast in mind, but apparently Jason Blum describes Ethan Hawke as his best friend, and Ethan's the godfather of Jason Blum's children. Hollywood makes strange bedfellows. (laughs) I guess that's how they got Ethan Hawke in The Purge, too. Yeah, there's some buddy buddy going on there, but yeah, apparently this movie came from a nightmare Derrickson had after watching The Ring. So. Usually you don't want to admit that you got your idea from another horror movie, but yeah, there was a nightmare in between. He was like, I saw the movie and then I had my own, something about the attic. I think the whole idea of finding evil films in an attic is a dream that he had. But of course, when you think about videotapes and movies that unleash paranormal creatures, The Ring is certainly a big one. Yeah, I look at this movie and I see it as... The Ring and a little bit of Nick Cage's 8mm, perhaps a touch of J.J. Abrams' Super 8, and then, yeah, you throw Insidious in it, you put it in a blender, you pour it in a cup, we got Sinister. Well, then, uh, do we need to do a plot? That's pretty accurate, but maybe (laughs) just for posterity, Arnie, you can tell them what happens in the film. Ethan Hawke plays true crime writer Ellison Oswalt. Ten years earlier, his book Blood in Kentucky made him famous and exposed a killer, but in the decades since, his other two books have failed to find success. So now he has moved along with his wife Tracy, played by Julia Relance, his son Trevor, and his daughter Ashley, to another small town to look into another crime. A few months earlier in this town, the Stevenson family was murdered. Four members of the family of five were hung from a tree by an unknown assailant, and 10-year-old Stephanie Stevenson went missing. The police have pretty much given up on the search, but Oswald thinks he can regain his fame either by finding the girl or her killer. But he doesn't tell his family he's actually moved them into the actual house where the Stevensons lived, where his office overlooks the backyard where they were hung. Soon after moving in, Ellison hears sounds in the attic, and when he goes up, he finds a box of Super 8 reels of tape. They have names like Pool Party, Lawn Work, and Family Hanging Out. But when he watches the tapes, each one starts with a family having a normal day, and ends with the family being killed, except for one of the children who's never seen again. And he finds child's drawings of all the families being killed, But off to the side is another figure who each child identified as Mr. Boogie. Mr. Boogie, yes. Disco has come back. (laughs) I mean, you know, I think Bagool is worse, but... Uh, At least they never say Mr. Boogie out loud in the movie. (laughs) If you can't read, you're probably better off at this point. I just think of my nephew who called snot boogies. (laughs) Like, was the boogeyman under trademark somewhere that they couldn't use that, or...? Oh, that was just probably too cheesy, so they decided to go with Mr. Boogie. 
In the house, their son Trevor starts to sleepwalk and have horrible night terrors, and their artistic child Ashley starts painting pictures of the hanging family, even though she shouldn't know anything about her father's work. But Ellison thinks he's onto a serial killer due to these tapes, and he's aided in his research by an unnamed deputy, who they just called Deputy So-and-So, played by James Ranson, and occult professor Jonas, played by an uncredited Vincent D'Onofrio. The deputy uncovers a pattern, though. Each murder happened in a house or on a property, and the next family to move into that house after people were killed, when they move away to another house, then they're killed. And so it's like a nasty chain letter through real estate, I guess? We'll talk about it. And Professor Jonas says the ritualistic symbols seen at the crime scene invoke Bagul, a pagan god who would kill entire families and then take one of their children into his realm in order to consume the child's soul. This news makes Ellison decide his family is more important than his book, so he gives up and packs his family up to move back to their original house. But that move actually accelerates Bagul's pattern. By moving to that new place, Bagul makes his move, and their little daughter Ashley drugs her parents, ties them up, and then dismembers them with an axe. And then she disappears into the Super 8 realm with Bagul as credits roll. Now, I didn't remember much about watching this movie three years ago, but the one thing that sticks with you, and probably always will stick with you, are the kill films. You know, spread throughout this movie are five different Super 8 versions of a family get-together gone horribly wrong. And we kick off the movie, I think it's wise to just put it out there because it's a grabber and you want to get your audience early. We see the Stevensons, the most recent victims of Bagul, although we don't know who they are at this point, hooded, strung up in a noose, and then through a complicated series of machinations, they go up and break their necks as a tree branch is sawed off and falls. I have so many questions about this film. First of all, a technical one. And Stuart, maybe you can tell me. I grew up with Super 8 films. You and I made a Super 8 movie. What is, like, the little glowy square off to the left? We don't see it on any of the other films. But when this movie opens, there's this little glowy box to the left. Oh, that's just the thread hole. And it's showing that the film is off kilter. It's just showing you stylistically, that this is a Super 8 film. Yeah, it's like a sprocket, right? I think is what you're talking Yeah. Sprocket's the word, yep. Yeah. Okay, I mean, I I knew that they had sprockets, I just never seen one projected. Super 8 only has sprockets on one side. It allows a bigger image. It's the same, it's still 8mm film, but what makes it super is that there's not sprockets on the other side, which is what 8mm is. Ah, maybe we made 8mm films then. I think ours had sprockets on both sides. My other question is, all right, how is that tree branch that, like, brings them up and it's a weird counterweight, how is that getting cut? Is there, like, a Rube <laughs> Goldberg machine or something? There isn't. It's revealed at the very end that someone is standing out of shot. They're behind the tree, essentially, but holding a branch cutter, and they are sawing it off. And... 
they rigged up jump ropes or something so that it will pull their family up. It's really hard to do. I mean, best not to dwell on the difficulty of setting up such a thing, particularly when you find out who is responsible for it. Well, and the physics of it. First of all, try getting one of those tree cutters and cutting even, you know, a two inch thick branch with that yet alone the branch that they did cut, which was probably, you know, like a good 10, 12 inches thick. Mm -hmm. And second of all, how heavy is that second branch, the counterweight? Is that heavy enough to lift an entire family up? I don't think it would be. I don't know. You know, I guess if they didn't eat a lot, maybe they're okay. (laughs) I I guess, though, that's what shocked me, is you start a movie, right? And we're seeing Super 8 film. And it's got, I'll give them complete credit. I think they actually shot this in Super 8. It's got that graininess and that dim color that I associate. Everything just looks a little brown in Super 8 films. And it definitely has that tone. But then we're going to find out this is a movie that takes place in the 21st century. These people weren't killed in the 70s or 60s when this kind of would have been a popular medium. This happened just a few months earlier. Who's still using Super 8 to record home movies? And developing it. I imagine you could still be shooting it, but like, where do you buy that film? Uh, you get it from the nether, right? From the further. It's That's how you know it's supernatural right off the get-go. I think in this movie, we're supposed to think for a little while anyway, that this could be a human serial killer. But actually, because of this opening is the way it is, it looks like a ghost or something is cutting that. There's all this weird fog in the background. It just never occurred to me that it wasn't a monster or a demon doing it all. And so, yeah, where did they get the film? Who's shooting the movie? I just assume it's magic. So you're telling me that Ghoul is the ghost of Kodak Eastman. (laughs) (laughs) I will say that this style captured me right off the bat you know the graininess like you said arnie of super 8 film just has a inherent creepy style to it and so it kind of grabbed me and pulled me in from the beginning i mean i remember sitting around as a kid watching old home movies my grandpa had shot of my dad and his sisters in the 60s and that even that when it's people just hanging out it's creepy without any voice or ambient sound it's just a weird feeling altogether and it never moves right you know it's like i have one of my mother doing this strange thing called the cocoa puff stance and if anybody knows what that is please tell me your mother won't tell you she doesn't remember she just remembers it was the cocoa puffs dance but that video was watched so many times and laughed at so many times that all we have now are a few surviving frames because in this movie the super 8 caught fire yeah that happened a lot in our house too yeah i actually learned on super 8 film when i went to film school they felt like this was a good beginner format and so i learned on actual film i cut i spliced all of this was great fun to see when we see the main character getting into that it brought back a lot of memories yeah i did that when i was a kid but it has that strange movement right it doesn't move naturally like somebody walking it feels really flip booky it's not like good film well, I'm guessing the frames per second are different than... No, they're, it's absolutely the same. What it is, is it tends to get misthreaded, and you'll see a lot of uh, jitter 
uh, in projection. The projectors are just not great, and, and they get snagged, and if they get caught in front of the lamp, they will burn, and it's just inherently a problematic format. There's a reason we moved on to VHS, and uh, it's because this, while was fun when it was invented in 1966, by the early 80s, it was a real pain. I thought it was just so people didn't have to take their home porn to the one-hour photo place. <laughs> Makes it much easier not to have to get that developed. But I'll agree with you, Justin, this opening scene. Now, I, I think it's pretty clear from the way I've been talking, I was skeptical coming into this Blumhouse film. But this, I actually just watched it twice in a row, because I see the family there with the nooses, and I think they're already dead. They're not moving. And then it goes up, and they start pinwheeling their legs and kicking. And I'm like, wait a second, how'd that branch come down? I rewind it, there's the tree cutter it does not look to me like something's happening behind the tree like a person it's really hard to see but it looks like it's just kind of floating there on its own doing its own cutting so instantly i am like is this a serial killer film is there ghosts involved i don't know but this grabbed me right away and i'm like all right, I want to see where this film is going. I want to know why these people were hung. Yeah, and then wisely, the first shot of the movie is a really long Steadicam shot where we go through this same house, but in a very modern way. In a single take, we watch our main character, Ellison, take one moving box because he's he's that kind of guy. All the other family is you know, unpacking several boxes at the time, but he's worried about his little office and he's going to walk through his house and we're going to meet all of the characters in one take and see at the very end of it that that tree is still back there in the backyard and that he has basically moved into a house where people have died violently. Not only is the tree still there, but the branch that did the deed is still <laughs> hanging down. You think they'd clean that out? I would think the realtor for curb appeal would want to remove the branch that hung the people. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I think they say a few months, but it hasn't been long since. I mean, I think this would have just hit the market and he jumped right on it because the asking price was low. He felt like it was worth the investment. We'll find out that this is someone who kind of blew his 15 minutes of fame and all the money that he earned from his first book. It was a critical success. And then he wrote two other ones that basically diminished law enforcement and got facts wrong. And I don't know that we ever really understand it, but basically he's got a lot to prove by writing another good book. And so he's made this investment to buy the murder house, but not tell his wife and children. Well, what I took away from, from that backstory is that maybe his first book wasn't necessarily brilliant. It might have been he was a lucky writer who found out some information that broke a case wide open. Not necessarily written overly well, but then he got super popular. I mean, we see throughout the movie he'd been on, you know, the talk show circuit. and Tavis Smiley. You gotta be A-list to go on Smiley. <laughs> But yeah, I mean, he he had, you know, his 15 minutes of fame and it felt like those other books were him trying to replicate that and not necessarily reaching that goal and maybe even doing it poorly to the point where he started to uh, point fingers at police departments and get himself more of a, a reputation around the country with cops as being 
somebody who doesn't necessarily want to find the facts. Maybe he'd rather just try to bolster up a narrative that he's trying to use to sell books. I don't know how to read it. I mean, we hear everything we know about this from whatever town he moved into. It had this sheriff played by Fred Thompson, and he is upset. You know, apparently every town this family moves to, they're hounded by the cops because his book says negative things about officers. And as Ellison says, he respects the work cops do, but they don't always get it right. This movie came out in 2012, living in 2016 with all of the police brutality stories we read these days, it really had a sense to me that the cops were kind of taking care of their own. His next two books didn't sell, that much I get, but was he making shit up? Well, this one sheriff says so, but I don't know. What I take it is, is that he thinks he's smarter than the cops. True. And that he tries to promote the idea that I can tell you who is really behind this true crime incident, and the cops got all the facts wrong. And that worked for him once, and it's blown, it sounds like it blew up for him another time. And at the very least, it's caused tension between him and the local authorities, if it didn't also tarnish his ability to sell the truth if people didn't think that he was a fabricator i sense that if they're not selling people have either tired of his bs or just don't believe it and i gotta say i love the postmodern touch ethan hawk is a failed novelist or <laughs> you know originally anyway it should be said his first book was widely mocked the hottest state i remember trying to read it and it is really really bad it was uh, basically he wanted to write before sunrise but in heavy purple prose and it was just awful but he has since i think gotten better and i think some of his later books have been better received it's the opposite of his character but who better to play a pretentious writer struggling with his own public image than Ethan Hawke. I think it's just great casting. And I think he's good in this role. I also see just a parallel with his acting career. I mean, Ethan Hawke is somebody who probably will always act. But these days he's doing Blumhouse films, whereas in the 90s and early 2000s, I felt like he was constantly in demand. I mean, you mentioned Before Sunrise. I think that around the time of Gattaca, Great Expectations, Reality Bites, that era was his peak. And so he's still a writer who's writing books, but he's not hitting the same market he was before. He's not having the same success. He's trying to get that back. He's trying to become a talk show worthy guest again. And I kind of could see that with Ethan Hawke himself these days. He's taking more artsy projects, but he may miss some of that spotlight he had in the late 90s. I think it's changed. I think what it is is that he was considered a heartthrob in the 90s. And then nobody he... will think that now. <laughs> Yeah, he's not, he's a little ragged looking and he's walked away from that. I mean, I, I think if you want to talk about his acting career, he spent a lot more time on the stage, New York and Chicago. He's just always theater acting and he takes movies, I think, as a way of paying bills. You know, he did get an Oscar nomination for Training Day and I feel like every time he needs a little cash in his pocket, he'll make a ripoff of Training Day, like the remake of Assault on Precinct 13 or Brooklyn's Finest or something like that. I felt he's reached the paycheck stage of his career. But only his movie career. I mean, keep in mind, an actor's career is bigger than what they do on screen. I mean, he has a really celebrated theatrical 
directing and acting career. He's an artist at heart, you know, and some of these actors that we know as actors, you know, some of them sit down and write novels. Some of them start bands that you don't want to go see. I mean, <laughs> so I guess I'll, I'll give it to Ethan that at least he's, you know, doing something a little bit more constructive than being in a crappy band at this point. Yeah, they all went through it. Johnny Depp did it. Keanu Reeves did it. But I think Hawk probably did it more successfully. The books got better and the stage work got more acclaim. And so, yeah, it is weird just to see him. And it's definitely weird to see him here in a horror movie, which is just not something that he had done before. It wouldn't be what you would expect. So maybe with him casting, you might think that this is more like a thriller. I do take it that way. I am, again, intrigued. And when they talk about him being a true crime writer exposing murders and things and that he's looking for this little girl that the cops have given up looking for again it has my interest is there something supernatural at stake here it's a blumhouse film so i'm still thinking so keep in mind i don't even remember a trailer for this before i started watching oh okay but it piqued my interest and i kind of like this family dynamic you know he's got the artistic daughter and they're a modern family, so they'll let her graffiti the walls of her own bedroom, and their son's kind of stuck dealing with the fallout of every town they go to. His father is hated. Yeah, the the girl is young enough to, you know, be able to make moves and blend in with kids, but she's probably getting to the end of that age now. But the boy is definitely feeling it, is what we're supposed to believe. I mean, he's 12 and every time you have to pack up and leave your friends and go to a new town, it's going to get just increasingly more and more difficult on somebody that age. And I think that that kind of plays out later on in the story where, you know, he's having these night terrors. And it helps to make us not automatically think, oh, well, these parents should obviously think there's something paranormal going on where they would see it as more of a psychological issue from these moves. It also fooled me into believing that the ghosts were trying to contact the son when in fact we'll find out you know just jumping ahead that it's really the daughter that they're going to turn and and make their vessel definitely it was a misdirection in there for sure yeah i was in suspense the whole time once we figure it out i'm like which child will it go for and the son trevor he gets a lot of the scenes of horror. I mean, he's just going to show up in the middle of the night shrieking multiple times and in strange locations. He just comes across as more eerie. That coming out of a box is really a freaky scene. I don't even understand it, but I love it. That's the scene that I do remember having stuck in my head from maybe a preview or something from years ago. As, you know, this kid bent over backwards, coming out of a box and shrieking. But... The daughter doesn't get a whole lot of attention. Maybe this is because she's much younger and the actress can only be on set for a few more hours. But I thought for sure that it was the son. I mean, he's got that crazy long hair. He's just creepy looking when they do get to those horror scenes. But in the beginning, I view them all as victims, not as potential suspects. But there is a little foreshadowing here it's i find it incredibly ironic that he is searching for this missing girl stephanie from the family that killed themselves last year 
And yet there's this daughter that wants to be close to him and he just keeps shutting out. You know, she'll try to bring him coffee at one point and he'll slam the door on her and just, he starts putting work ahead of his family, Jack Torrance style. It really becomes kind of Shining-esque, which is a mislead. You start to think that he's going more crazy. What's really important there is that he doesn't know what his children are doing. But even within that, the detail that they wrote into this dynamic worked for me because it's it's not only him shutting out his family, but it's also him protecting his family in a way too because the reason he wants them not to be in his office is because of the things they would be exposed to. And, you know, that's that's kind of a protective maneuver on his part. But you're right, it works both ways for that character. I love that tension. And I get the impression he wouldn't necessarily care, but his wife would be really pissed. I mean, she's chastising him because he needs to keep that door locked. He's saying, well, the kids should just stay out of it. But the wife willfully wants to remain ignorant of all of this. We mentioned they don't know they're moving into this house. <laughs> but yes, there is a little bit of a political lie when the sheriff is there and he waves at the house and says this is in bad taste. We, the audience, don't realize that at that point they moved into the murder house, but it, I suspected it. A couple of seconds later, he's standing by the tree. Yeah. I mean, we are told right away, but she's frustrating. I'm going to go ahead and just say, I feel like, I don't know if it's the performance or the way they chose to write the character, but I cannot be on Tracy's side, even though I'm sure she has a point here. I mean, it is all Ellison's fault, all the things that happen, but she's so annoying in the way that she isn't supportive of him. I mean, she says horrible things like, honey, maybe your 15 minutes are over and, you know, I should just take the kids to my sisters. I think she's poorly written because there's, there's scenes where they were just straight up fighting, yelling at each other, and then they're getting along. And then later on, she's apologizing. It's like, wait a minute, I thought we maybe missed the apology because you guys were getting along in the last scene. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I think that maybe there were some cut scenes or something, but she's basically just there to keep the story moving and show that there's a danger about that maybe Ellis isn't seeing outside of the supernatural stuff he's experiencing. Not according to the director. The director really went on on the commentary about the family drama being the heart of this and really having even more scenes between Ethan Hawke and Juliet Relance that got cut because the Jason Blum said it was just dragging a bit too much. But he felt like these two had great chemistry and that he really wanted to portray strife in a marriage. I mean, they're, they love each other. They're not at risk of divorce. But in his mind, they're trying to sell us that there are troubles and troubles that could be forgotten if he gives up his work. She tells him there are other things you can do. You could teach. You could edit other people's books. It's not that he needs to do this to support his family. He needs to do this to feed his ego. Yeah, and it just doesn't come from a loving place from her. The way that she says it, the way that it comes off. Again, she is trying to do it, but she is judgmental. She thinks that he is exploitive by writing about real murders. And the fact that she doesn't want to know, to me, feels like a judgment in and of itself. She's not interested in participating on bouncing ideas off of it. She thinks it's gross. And in essence, she just thinks that what he's pursuing is wrongheaded. But she's going to try to suck it up and just play housewife. 
But I also don't get the sense that she's dedicated to that stance either. Because, I mean, at one point he makes the comment that, you know, if this one hits, then we'll be on easy street. And she smiles knowingly at him like, yeah, that, that doesn't sound bad at all. So it's not that she's so convinced that what he's doing is wrong that she's going to put her foot down and demand that he stops. I find her to be harder to read and really beside the point that she basically should know. I mean, she should suspect if they're moving to a town so he can do research, she should suspect that she is near a crime scene. He keeps the lie up going by saying, we're not a couple doors down from one. <laughs> it didn't happen in the house. That was questioned as asked. It's, it was very Hillary Clinton of him. I don't see the problem. <laughs> he didn't lie, but he did not. He In many instances, you see him wanting to tell her and her sending missed signals about whether she wants to know. So they're kind of both to blame here. But it really becomes much more complicated and Ellison becomes much more culpable when he finds evidence that the police don't have about the crimes. He winds up going to the attic and finding the Super 8 projector and video footage left by the killer. Here, basically, the family becomes irrelevant. It becomes a one-man show of Ethan Hawke in a dark room brooding. That's kind of the rest of the movie, right? I mean, he's going to watch videos, and they're disturbing videos. But yeah, he finds this box in the attic when he hears some kind of sound. We're treated to standard horror stuff as he walks down hallways without turning the lights on and tries to investigate the sound. And They do a lot in this movie without lights on. Well, this is the best stuff for me. I do feel like the movie is at its peak when we're getting him investigating and looking at the movie. Oh, totally agree. By this point, I'm totally drawn in now because, you know, he's basically watching snuff films. The first time he doesn't know that, you know, but after that first one, he realizes that he's got a box full of snuff films and... The first one he watches is of the family in that house. Yeah, no, yeah. He would recognize right away that that is the case that he's investigating. But what's curious is, and it took me a second to figure it out, the other ones didn't also happen in the house. It's not like a family is killed there every decade. There are murders that are very similar across this country for the past 40 years. And there is an invisible thread that no one has connected before. It is these films that connects them. Yeah, I would completely expect to find super rates by the previous home's owners in the attic. I wouldn't suspect to find these tapes from across the country. So seeing this first one, I mean, these things, this is the movie's best part in my mind as well, is how they handle all of these tapes. And they have such wonderfully innocuous titles as like hanging out, barbecue, pool party. I mean, these are what a normal family would label their <laughs> videotapes, but in each case here, hanging out, I love it. That's because they're hanging from a tree. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah, and these are creepy. I called it out even before I heard the commentary, and I imagine anyone that knows Ban Hunter would do the same. These are like those really scary moments in the first Hannibal Lecter movie where we had a killer break into family's homes and kill them all while videotaping it. And, you know, he would go take the step of putting mirrors in their eyes so he could see himself in their dead bodies. It was super creepy. It was the best part of that movie. And it, they've certainly borrowed a lot from that in these snuff film moments. 
we're getting these Super 8 home movies that are, as we've talked about already, inherently creepy just by look. And the score that they put in here, it really, really works very well. It's haunting and it's got, you know, creepy voices going on throughout. I did stop and pull myself out of the movie for just a second asking myself if that soundtrack was part of the Super 8 movie or just the movie we're watching. Mm-hmm. I recognize one of the songs. I'm a big fan of Boards of Canada, which does sort of the main theme of that. It's the one that's at the end credits. And I mean, I can't sing it for you. It's a lot of crunching and gurgling, <laughs> but you, you'll know it when you hear it. And they're a, an awesome sort of industrial ambient. I mean, it's kind of hard to describe, but kind of like Aphex Twin or something. Their their music can be soft or hard, depending, and it's always very ominous. Yeah, they got a couple different things going on here. Christopher Young, Hellraiser fame. We're also going to be discussing him coming up on the fly, too. No, the trick-or-treat, the one we're discussing in a couple weeks. All right, so yeah, we're really talking about him a lot. He did this, and I do like it better than, again, an insidious or conjuring kind of score but there's a lot of also yeah off the shelf songs they called it black metal music it's a combination that really just melds because these are songs that i don't know Stuart, you said you're into it i could never imagine listening to it outside of context of a film does it play well like again to what you said to me with chopping mall are you on the treadmill and just groove into this you can't, yeah, like Turquoise Hexagon Sun is like a song you could almost dance to, or you could, it's a mood piece. I mean, I, down tempo is what I would call it. But um, yeah, you could definitely listen to it and, and feel stimulated. There's enough going on to me that it works like music as opposed to oral wallpaper. But yeah, a lot of it just sort of heightens the scene. Sometimes you may not even realize you're listening to music because you're pulled in by the images. And then you realize that that sound isn't coming from the movie. It is external. Let's just run down the movies because I think they're all, I mean, which one is your favorite? I'm going to go with the lawnmower one. I think that one was the one in 86, somebody filmed them doing, quote, lawn work by basically running over their family. I would place that as my favorite if the movie didn't cut away, you know, going for their PG-13. No, Arnie, that's the point. I mean, if you did the splatter, it would be like, oh, effects. I can see the makeup. Yeah, I mean, it's just awful to think about. To watch his response to it is more powerful. Cutting away makes it scarier. Cutting away makes it frustrating. I'll split the difference there because I didn't need to see the gore, but I wasn't 100% sure that they had ran over a person, yet alone a line of people, the way they cut on that one. And when they're slicing the necks of the families duct taped in their beds, they cut away from the moment that the knife goes across the neck and we just see it reflected in his glasses. I mean, I think that they've made the choice not to make it a hard R, gratuitous, exploitative violence. It's the inference that makes it awful. That scene was well done. I love seeing the reflection in his glasses. I wish we had seen, it doesn't have to be splatter. It does not have to be close-ups of puppet heads oozing red, but I wish we'd seen in his glasses or something. What we see is he goes, ooh, and runs from the room. We barely see that movie. So that's the disappointing thing on that. Well, for overall creepiness, like, they were all pretty pretty well done, and all of them had just enough hint of real, twisted, you know, psychotic person behind them that you could almost feel like these did happen in real life and somebody found these. But the one that I think kind of stuck with me was the pool. Mm-hmm. 
That one was really creepy just because of the lighting and the water and the flashlight that they have to hold reflecting off the water. And this is the first time we get a glimpse of, I don't even want to say Mr. Boogie, but I guess, you know, Bagul or whoever this strange looking creature is underwater. The killer. Yes. Or the puppet master. And I thought that was a great way to introduce this thing because it's under a distorted frame of water. So we're not sure if we're seeing somebody with a twisted looking face or if the water's doing that. So I thought that was a very clever way to to introduce that person into the the movie. Yeah, it changes it to act two. I mean, up to that point, we're just, it's kind of just been sitting there, oh, creepy movies. But now he has an image of the killer. He gets to see the, the footage exactly once. And then when he stops it and goes up to look at the screen for a closer inspection, of course, it's going to burn. And he's only left with a couple frames. And it's really going to push the second act of the movie to be, who is this guy? Is he still around? Is he filming me? Yeah, I... Did like that when it caught fire. He then proceeds to just use like a digital camcorder to film the screen while playing the Super 8 videos. You know what? I gotta say, <laughs> Ellison Oswalt, no wonder he hasn't had any bestsellers. His idea of investigative writing is sitting in his goddamn house. He doesn't talk to anybody. He doesn't talk to the townspeople. He's not doing any research into the people. You know what I'd do if I was him? Take those Super 8s to the local place, and there will be one that will convert your Super 8s to DVD. Then you could do frame-by-frame analysis that's much higher res than just pointing a camcorder. And maybe while you're out there... Find some people who know the family and could tell you something about them. All we know about this entire Stevenson family is they hung from a tree. Well, I think he might be afraid of letting that footage out of his hands and being scooped by a local reporter or something. Because he has to write a book, you know, so he's being selfish here. Yeah, he makes the horrible choice that rather than tell the authorities... I'm going to just keep it for myself, and and that'll be my surprise. No one will know about this until it hits bookshelves, which is just, I mean, how crass is that? I mean, this is potentially information that could be used to find a missing girl, or at least the corpse of a missing girl, and he's going to hold on to it. I mean, that's unethical by any journalistic standard, but he has made that choice, and I think that's why he'll die, is because he made that choice. But also, Arnie, we don't see him interview anybody else because they thought this movie was running too long, and they cut those scenes, but they did try to introduce a neighbor character played by May, or Carrie 2002, if you want it, Angela Betty is sort of the crazy girl neighbor who has a little more information on the family and they just decided she didn't matter enough to include the five minutes of footage they shot. Yeah, I watched the cut scenes on the video of that and, you know, they were there. Believe me, cutting Angela Bettis lost nothing out of this film. Where would have that taken place in the timeline, though? It would have made sense for him to do some investigation prior to finding the movies. But I think once he finds the movies... That's it. That's where he's going to be focused. It happened after the night terrors. The kids go off to school and he's alone. And rather than go and just watch the movie, he goes out to look at the tree and the neighbor comes out and she says, my husband doesn't want me to talk about this, but I'll share a few things with you. But it really isn't a whole lot of revealing facts. They were right to cut it. 
the movie does feel long. And I think in general, even though I do like this movie and I think the mood is everything, I don't need a whole lot of plot. Just the sense of foreboding is enough. I do think we have a lot of repeated information and characters talking and Googling and, you know, it's not a particularly active environment here. No, this movie is an hour 50. It feels like they could have really done a tight 90-minute movie out of this. Well, that's kind of steep. I mean, 20 minutes gone? I don't know. 10? Maybe. Did we need all of these tapes, especially when the sleepy time and lawn work come in such close succession? We get the same thing out of four films that we'd get out of six, and here we have six. Which one would you cut? Barbecue? We haven't talked about that, but there was the 79 family who was up in Sacramento on a fishing trip and wound up chained in their sedan and burning in their garage. And the problem is I like all of them. They're my favorite parts of the film. I think I'd cut some of Ethan Hawke's brooding over them. The other thing that I like about having so many is it sets out a timeline. This Bagul isn't killing people every month or every year even. We've got 1966, 13 years later, we've got the barbecue, it's about seven years later, lawn work, and it takes a full 10 years for sleepy time, and from there, what, 13 years to hanging out? Yeah, it's basically about every decade there's a new incident, because that's what it usually takes, I guess, for someone to move into this property and then move out. But is everybody who moves into one of these properties having their children freak the fuck out and seeing spirits and night terrors and hearing all these thumping noises and finding snakes and scorpions? Because I'd move out a lot quicker. I'm just going to say. <laughs> <laughs> well, if your house is full of scorpions, I'm out. I don't need a demon. Like, that's horrifying. I couldn't live in a place <laughs> yeah. with scorpions. Yeah, scorpion in the attic, I would not sleep. Those things are going to be dropping out of air mm. vents under your bed as you sleep. No, thank you. But yeah, I mean, there were other scares moving up to a lot of this where Ethan Hawke is sitting around watching these movies or just hearing weird things around his house, which I think is all working very well to build up suspense as to what's going on here. There's a lot of it, but yes, I mean, I do think the sound design, the cinematography, it's a really dark movie with a lot of strange noises in the night. We can't tell where they're coming from. I think they play that trick a little too often, and again, I would cut the movie by five to ten minutes. Some of that stuff should go, but yeah, I mean, it's half an hour of that, then he does at least that there is a bagul, that it has to be supernatural because it has jack-o'-lantern eyes and is walking underneath the pool. It can breathe underwater, so it's not a normal serial killer. He has to know that something big, and then later, it's going to be in the attic filming him when he falls through. So he's going to see that footage. He's going to know pretty early on into this investigation, I think it's only a week, he knows that he is a target and that the person that killed the family previously is around in the neighborhood. I ask you, would you still hold on to that secret? Could you resist the temptation to call the cops and get help for yourself? I mean, I would be afraid for my life and my family's life knowing that it could be in the house. He's drinking a lot at this point. They call <laughs> yeah. it out. 
<laughs> I don't know exactly how credible he would be if he calls the cops and says, oh, by the way, there's a demon. No, I can't prove it because the tape burned up. He does have a couple of assistants, though. He uh, he has deputy so-and-so who comes in, and we are introduced to him at the very beginning when the sheriff shows up to say, don't mess with my town, partner. But then he comes back a little later. He wants to be an assistant. He wants to be part. He idolizes Ellison as a writer and wants to be in on this and breaks department rules and sneaks him some information. So he does have that going for him. And he doesn't really know anything yet. I wasn't even sure that was a face underwater. I mean, these are some grainy Super 8 tapes. I thought this might be like a James Bond-like reflection in an eyeball for all I could tell before it burned up. True. He doesn't know what he's looking at yet until Deputy So-and-So and him start to work together. Yeah, I mean, he's eventually going to see in the the lid of the box there's kid drawings and there is that's where we get mr boogie is that we'll see that pool done as a kid drawing with uh, a stick figure mr boogie there in the pool with the family duct tape to their lawn chairs drowning I, I think it's pretty evident that it's a creature and i think it's a creature that has supernatural powers and i would be calling yeah a, a priest or someone in the mystical realm i guess he does get hooked into a professor of the occult. That, that is as close to an expert as, as he can find. And Skype is as close to Vincent D'Onofrio as they're going to get. <laughs> <laughs> this was a favor. Ethan Hawke's friend, He, I don't think he did it for much money, if anything, and he didn't get credit in the movie. He's essentially doing a Francis Ford Coppola impersonation, as far as I can tell. He looks like him, he talks like him, and it's basically one day of filming where he just kind of spews out some nonsense about the history of Bagul. And what I got out of it anyway was that Bagul wants you to look at the videos because the more you look at his crimes, the more he can open the gateway and come get you. He's not in the footage in the opening of the movie, but later when they play the hanging scene again, he is there in the bushes. Yeah, he starts to reveal himself a little bit more upon more viewings. Yeah, it's like a Where's Waldo with the demon killer. Did you ever think that Ellison might just be crazy, that it's the drinking and his madness that is making him see things that aren't there? No, I didn't. No, I wasn't getting that either. <laughs> yeah, I think we could have. I mean, I think that's a reading to have, but I think because I know what Blumhouse does and I saw the trailer and know that this is going to go in very supernatural ways, it really wasn't a credible reading for me. I never... It would have been really amazing if they could have written a subplot in which it made me believe there was potentially a human suspect like the neighbor angela bettis could be the killer that would be really surprising you already brought up the shining and if at the end it was revealed that ellison was the killer and he had washed it off of bagul you know bagul goes for the youngins so that isn't what would happen in this universe but at the beginning we're not quite sure what is happening we don't know who the killer is what the killer is we don't know what bagul is if he had ended up with an axe in his hand and slaughtered his family at the end, you could have multiple readings. Because he ends up tied up with it and chopped up, it doesn't hold up. No, no, no. I'm not saying that would be the reading at the end of the movie. I'm saying while you're watching the movie, you might think, oh, this guy is just like Jack Nicholson in The Shining. He's going crazy. All work and no play is making Ethan Hawke want to kill the family. I wish I had that reading, but as it was, I liked this as a murder mystery. I still wanted to know 
who killed that family. Yes, there's this masked creature who we'll later know to, as Bagul or Mr. Boogie in the video, and I want to credit them on some really cool creature design. We're in this postmodern, everything's been done era to the point that we're stuck with veil head and lipstick demon from Insidious as the new frightening designs, quote unquote frightening. I really like Mr. Boogie's just masked face where he is a demon, but he could just be like a human predator who wears a really scary mask. It could just be like the bassist from Slipknot. I mean, it, you know, it just, he looked like a horror rock and roller, you know. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, but there was some deformities going on there, you know, pronounced cheekbones, a, a turned up nose, and I don't even think he has a mouth, from what I can remember. Well, I took that all as a mask, and the mask, it kind of had a weird, like, theater mask grin. I thought it was very jack-o'-lantern-esque, like it was an albino pumpkin kind of thing going on, and it was the eyes more than anything. Who has triangle-shaped eyes? My first reading actually was a witch of some sort. You know, our first glimpse of it underwater, I almost thought it was a female mm -hmm. possible witch type of character. But yeah, it's all intriguing. What we can all agree is that this is compelling at this point. I understand, even though I think it's morally abhorrent, that he is going to keep all these secrets and try to get the answers himself. And that he's going to use the tools available to him, a sort of dopey deputy and a occultist professor who won't meet him in person. I just don't think he's going to be very well equipped. And so what is he going to be able to discover on his own that's going to crack the case? Ghost children on his lawn. And a fog machine. <laughs> yeah, this is where they start to tell you what's really happening here. That, you know, it's been said that in each of these incidents, the pool party in the 60s was in Oregon, the barbecue in the 70s, the 80s, 90s, all of them have the same end result. Everyone in the family unit died except one child who was, quote, abducted. That there are now ghost children hanging out on his lawn with a scary looking dog and are going to be running around in slow motion while he can't see them in his house. I think it was pretty obvious to me at that point that these must be the quote-unquote abductees, that they're now working for the demon. Yeah, this is where I started to wonder, okay, which of Ellison's children is going to be the killer? I, I like that they basically tell us the child that is quote-unquote missing, you know, Dr. Jonas said their soul is eaten, and now we see them out on the lawn. It's not a question of if one of Ellis's kids is going to go, but which? Yeah, definitely. And since after seeing the children in the yard, or not seeing them, but we as an audience see them, this is where he finds his son hiding in the bushes having another night tear. Yeah, the son just it looked more guilty. You hate to say it, but you, you'd think that the boy would be the one more drawn to it. He looks more compelled. He's already been disciplined at school for bad behavior. He seems to be under a supernatural influence, whereas the daughter, we'll see one scene of her kind of cowering in bed with Stephanie, the missing girl from the family, as a ghost child, putting her finger to her lips in the corner. But other than that, we don't see her interacting with the supernatural. And this is where the movie starts to lose me a little bit. I think the the children running through the house was a little overdone. A lot less here would have gone a lot further in keeping the creepy what's going on vibe that the movies worked so hard up to this point to give us. Well, let's just get to it. Do you like the idea that it's not Bagul that does the killing? It couldn't be Bagul that does the killing because Bagul is in the camera shot. 
So who's filming the camera? It's the kids. And the kids are the ones that are going to kill their family. That is really dark. That's really twisted. And I think conceptually, when you look at footage and think that they're responsible for it, that's powerful. When you see the kids, it's less powerful. You know, I didn't see you saying it was quite so dark when we reviewed Children of the Corn. I mean, I guess I didn't think anything at oh, all of it. <laughs> I No, I thought that opening in Children of the Corn is horrifying, where they all drink the poison and in the cafe. No, that is an extremely, extremely upsetting opening. I will give this movie one thing that I didn't notice the director's commentary called it out. A lot of the Super 8 footage, it's very shaky. It looks like every Super 8 film my family made when I was a baby. But then it gets still when the child who will be the murderer walks in. And it points out, yeah, this is when the child put it on a tripod or put it on a surface. And now they're on frame. So the movie is telling you who the killer is before we ever see those ghost children on the lawn. I like that detail. Yeah, I mean, it's a projection of something that you couldn't necessarily put together without more information. But yes, it's it's there for when you rewatch or finally put it all together yourself. But I agree with Stuart. This is the point of the movie where we find out what is happening is actually so dark and sinister that it actually kind of sends chills down my spines. But the movie ends up ruining that by showing goofy little ghost kids running around and trying to be spooky. They're not as good as Bagul. I, I don't think Ruin is a little harsh. I mean, I, I like the film, but that weird moment where he's walking through his house and they're running around, it seems like a misstep. That should have been cut. Yes. Nothing in this movie is scary to me. When he finds the scorpion, when the loud sounds bang and it turns out to be an animal... This movie never succeeds in frightening me, but it does intrigue me. I know these ghost kids are there. I am starting to put this all together, but on a first watch, as this mystery is unraveling, it's continuing to intrigue me. Even, yeah, I'm not frightened by a frame of it. You're not even held in suspense. I mean, the, none of the, the sound design or any of it is like keeping you a little on edge. I'm liking it. I'm appreciating it. The thing that has me for the first three quarters of the film is who's the killer? What's going on? What's the link between these families? And once it's revealed to be Bagul, I'm like, all right, it's a demon. And now I'm really on edge. Which of his kids is going to become possessed? Now, I will readily admit, I never thought this film would have the dark ending it does. I thought for sure, maybe the bitchy mom would die. I thought one of the kids would become possessed. But usually, in a film like this, the whole point is seeing our hero vanquish the demon and all the kills that came before set up the pattern so we know why we fear the demon, right? It's really uncommon that what we're watching ourselves like him is a snuff film we're basically watching the kind of movie he watched we start with all these happy scenes of his family we're going to end with them all dead <laughs> i didn't expect it and it kept me invested in the film i expected him to learn you know he makes a terrible choice early on that i think most people would feel instantly that's bad you're not telling your wife you're not telling the cops you know that there is something stalking you out in the night and you're just not taking the proper security measures but he does in the climax he finally decides, I think it was like some weird movie screening in his attic that has him decide, you know what, 
screw this. We'll burn the footage. We'll move back to the other place. I never sold it. So we can just go back to our old home. We're out of here. He's finally made the right decision. And what it reminds me of is like Drag Me to Hell, where we had a character that made a terrible mistake early, and now they're trying to correct it. We think by correcting it, they'll be able to save their family. And it's so bitter that it doesn't. Yeah, the thing that incites him to do it is he finds the extended cuts, right? He finds the ends that he splices onto each of the movie. He's seen the deaths, but he hasn't put together it's the missing children doing it until he watches the real strung end to end and sees each one had an ending where the kid comes out and mugs for the camera and shh. And then, yes, he's going to be so thorough. I love that he grabs all of the movies off his desktop, drags to trash, and then empties the trash on his Mac. That was funny to me. <laughs> That's good thinking. I mean, if it's if it's something supernatural, you might as well get rid of everything that you possibly can. All I could think of is, does he back up to iCloud? Did he go to the cloud? <laughs> what about Time Machine? Does he have that turned on? <laughs> yeah, there's redundancy here. I don't know how, how good of a trashing that was. but Well, I mean, he did take the originals and put them in a grill and set them on fire. I mean, I think he thinks that he's done all that he can to make sure that the world will never know about Bagul. Because the more that people see Bagul's work, the more he has influence over them. But what he doesn't know that gets told to him by the deputy too late is that he should have never moved out. That, in fact, the decision to go back and do what his family wanted him to, which is to return them to the home that they loved, is not possible anymore. Because once you move to the new home, that is when Bagul can strike. He's like, oh, good. It's my house now. I can have my minion kill everyone. And now I'll wait for new owners. And it's not that huge of a shock because they did trace the owners of this house where he had lived, where the hanging took place, to having lived in the house in St. Louis where some murders took place. So there is that trail there. They set that up. But yes, once he moves away, Deputy So-and-So, which is how it's programmed into Ellison's phone, keeps calling and he keeps sending it to voicemail. And Ellison, I guess, never leaves said voicemail. So it's not until the very end that he finds out. That's the way you want a horror movie shocker to end. I mean, again, that he feels like he can make a good choice after making so many bad ones. We'd like to believe there's redemption. That's, I think, all of our lives hinge on the idea that I can atone for things that I've done wrong in the past. To know that he's beyond the pale and to know that he'll be done in by the daughter that he ignored. To look for the daughter that was murdered is an extraordinary twist. I really do love these final minutes here where he realizes that he's been drugged, that she left that message, good night, daddy, and he's slumping over while she's standing there with an axe. I mean, that is just horrifying. And the idea that, you know, she saw that he was so concerned about being fame and tells him, oh, don't worry, daddy, I'll make sure that you're famous. Uh, that's a good irony. It is. And you asked earlier, what was your favorite movie? And I never got my answer in. My answer is House Painting. <laughs> I love this ending. It is so grisly. I mean, she's standing there with an axe. But then we cut to her doing the little Mr. Boogie drawing that they all have in the video. And they're all in these pieces. This is the kind of horror I like. I'm not all about the splatter. Seeing the picture, the little stick drawing of them all cut up is what I needed. Whereas with the 
lawnmower. I'm like, what happened? This tells me everything I need to know, and it's fucking gruesome. <laughs> Much more effective than showing us some fake body parts laying on the ground. Yeah, and she's such a creepy girl, too. Why We pay so little attention to her because she's not having the night terrors. She's on the poster. I didn't see the poster. <laughs> I went into this really fucking blind, okay? <laughs> I was paying no attention to her. And I often forgot about her. I mean, we're like Ellison himself, who kind of shuts her out. The son needed more attention. So when the actress pulls off this creepy, monotone voice and stare and I'll make sure you're famous and all of that. Wow. And then the little cocking of the head with the ghost children on the film. And then she does the same and Bagul is behind her. This is really effective stuff. Yeah, and the casting of this child makes sense in this moment. Because up to this point, I was not enjoying this girl's acting. And I know it's not nice to make fun of the, a child's look. But she was a goofy-looking kid. And to cast a child in a movie, you're usually going to get somebody who's a good actor and at least cute enough to have that charisma come through on film. But getting to this point, the casting end up making so much sense and i had to applaud them for that is there a morality here is this a judgment on parenting in the millennial age that uh, that he deserved this or that it's their fault for leaving their child alone to watch scary movies is that why she got turned oh i don't think there's anything they could have done i think the events that took place were set in motion the minute that they walked into the house in the beginning of the movie i agree whether he'd watch the tapes or not you live in that house you move to the next house the ghosts were still going to show themselves he makes a conscious choice not to tell the cops but i think if they're implying a morality here it's putting career in front of family isn't the thing to do and there's this moment this struck home with me it's one of the several fights between ellison and tracy And he goes, these books are my legacy. And I kind of understand that mindset when you're doing work and you want it to really resonate. But I remember when I've said similar things to my wife and she goes, you know, what about me? That kind of, I put my work first instead of I put my family first. That argument between them, I think, epitomizes the morality of this story. You know, goddamn if I'm quoting Susie Ormond, but it's like people first, then money, then things. Yeah, and I I think that that's just a classic gender breakdown in America, that men are taught that they should have careers and women are taught that they should have families. And the fact that he didn't prioritize that. I don't know. I think that he could have gotten out of this alive if he didn't watch the films. If he had handed them over and not as soon as he realized what he had... I don't know that Bagul would have gotten him, but he opened that portal by keeping it and watching it himself. I think that was the mistake that faded. Uh, he, he could have lived through the earlier mistake of moving into a house where he knew murders had happened, but to conceal needed evidence, to pursue single-handedly the one daughter uh, meant that his own daughter would turn on him. Let me follow that line of thinking through to its conclusion. So are you saying... Every single family in this chain found a box of Super 8 tapes, and none of them reported them to the police, and that's why each family deserved their grisly death? Yeah, it's impossible to know. Possibly. I mean, it's certainly a possibility. 
Super 8 came into existence in 1966, so it would have been a really new thing for that pool party family that it was 1979, yeah, they would have still been using it, but in the 80s and the 90s, I don't know that people would have been drawn to thread up a Super 8, any kind of projector. I mean, it just wasn't done in the last 20, 25 years, so it's difficult to know, but because we don't have those flashbacks, I can't say. I guess that's why we have a sequel. We'll learn more about Bagul and how he works next week. Yeah, what did Bagul do before Super 8? I mean, was he in the day of talkies? <laughs> well, D'Onofrio did cover that a little bit it, because it was artwork and etchings and stuff like that that would draw people in. And he, he even mentioned that children were more susceptible to Bagul's drawings and depictions of horrific scenes. So I think he was using art and pictures previously, or at least pagans, you know, who were, I don't know. We don't know what brought Bagul about. Did somebody conjure him? Yeah, <laughs> I agree. We don't know enough about Bagul. It's interesting that at the end of this film, we feel like a satisfying story has been told, but we know almost nothing about the perpetrator of the crimes. Which is sometimes the best way to go versus over-explaining. I really don't want... You know how they did ginger snaps and like in one of the sequels, they made it a period piece and talked about the origin of the werewolves. I don't because I never saw it. Well, let's not do that with Sinister 3 and make it the origin of Bagul. (laughs) (laughs) So Justin Stewart, should people thread up Sinister Justin? You know, this movie has a lot of things going for it that we've talked about. I, like I said, I was drawn in immediately by the, the creepiness, the grittiness of the Super 8 films. And the idea of somebody solving a mystery is always fun to me. True crime stories always pull me in. So yeah, I was the first 45 minutes to an hour of this movie. I'm in it and I'm, I'm sitting there and I'm ready for scares. I'm ready for jump scares and it's, it's creeping me out to a point where. I'm going along for the ride here. I don't care if it's going to be something goofy and supernatural. I don't care if we find out if it's somebody down the lane wearing a a scary mask. Up to this point, I'm in it. And, you know, Stuart, you kind of jumped at me a little bit for using the word ruined when we got to the ghost kids. And I think that was the turning point for the movie. It could have ruined this movie had we not gotten to the satisfying ending that they delivered. If it would have if we would have gotten to the end of this movie and he was able to redeem himself and save his family, then I think that would have been the turning point that ruined this film for me. But since we did get a sad result resolution to this that leaves a story open for even more stories to be told, I feel like that was not the turning point of the movie that could have dragged it down. So in the end, I enjoyed it, and it's a movie that I think is going to sit with me for a little bit. So, yeah, I'm going to give it a recommend. Stuart. Yeah, I'm going to cite that. I think people are right to cite this as a strong film for horror in the last decade. I mean, I do think that it is very bleak, uh, surprisingly so for a commercially released movie. I mean, keep in mind, it was a small budget and released by Lionsgate, which is prone to to being a little bit more edgy, but I agree. You couldn't anticipate some of the moves that this movie makes, that it butchers small children and then has small children butcher their parents is quite shocking. And some of these movies, just by inference, not by the blood content, but just by what they imply in the brief moments where we're watching it. Yeah, it's incredibly brutal. I I just think that this is a very upsetting, 
queasy experience and the kind of horror that if you're more prone to a serial killer that tells jokes and makes puns this one might disquiet you you might find this movie less fun because it is so grim but as someone that likes horror to be bleak this is exactly up my alley i think this this is so far i haven't seen that much but the best thing that blumhouse has done and i'm happy to say a solid recommend for me three for three on green arrows for sinister i don't mind a jokey serial killer but i also do like it when films get dark and you're right they don't happen all that often i'm thinking back to like house of a thousand corpses another movie where i really didn't expect the ending that we ended up getting not even counting the ozzy osbourne monsters and in this case ethan hawk we have discussed him quite a bit last year when we did the before trilogy and boyhood and i think he really does a great job he has to carry this movie and yes the girl who plays his daughter does a great job as well when she's called upon but it's ethan's movie he has to almost wordlessly walk through dark hall after dark hall and watch movie after movie if you want to see this type of thing done really bad watch nick cage and eight millimeter i mean it's almost the exact same thing of obsessively watching films but where nick cage goes high ethan hawk goes low key and it works so much better and just the mood of this piece, the various things, the mystery. I don't know that this film has high rewatchability, but my first time through, I'm on the edge of my seat wondering who's this killer and thinking that there's a possibility that this masked thing they're seeing is an actual person wearing a mask. This could have been a slasher film instead of a ghost film, and I wondered which way it would go. So, yeah. It's Halloween, and this is probably, like, the best scare I've gotten so far. A horror of 1986 donation series. It turns out 1986 liked to joke a lot with its horror. We have covered almost as many comedies as horror over there. In fact, I think more. But this is a straight horror film, and thank God, it proves I can still like a good haunted house story. People have been kind of upset that we like Poltergeist, but when it got to Insidious and Conjuring and those, by and large, now playing, and Marjorie Stewart and I being the hosts, have not been too kind. I can say this is where it's done well, and those other films are where it's done really poorly. So yeah, it's a solid recommend. Yeah, I mean, I, I just want to say I liked Insidious too, but this one is much stronger for being darker by having the R rating and having a director that was willing to go there and a cast that was really good too. I liked everyone in the cast except maybe the wife, even Fred Thompson, who this might be the last thing he did before he died and right after his failed presidential bid, if you remember that, he was running for office. <laughs> oh, yeah. And then he decided to make this. Who knows? But he's even good in his two days of shooting here. I, I think it's a very impressive little movie. And I'm excited to see the sequel. I haven't seen it. I've heard nothing but terrible things. I'm hoping that they're all wrong. There's terrible things said. I know even less about Sinister 2 than I knew about Sinister 1, in that I knew there was a Sinister 1. I knew it was directed by the Doctor Strange guy. I didn't even know there was a sequel. Again, no, I have not seen the poster, so if the killer's on it, that's news to me. I'm guessing Ethan Hawke does not return. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if he does, I'm out. <laughs> yeah, uh, I think in a newspaper clipping, but uh, yeah, we'll see. Uh, I, I'm excited to get there next week. We will be covering it. 
as well as Doctor Strange. All right. Well, Justin Stewart, thank you for joining me. Again, listeners, nowplayingpodcast.com forward slash donate. Help out our show. Help us keep on the air. I just had to recently upgrade our servers again, increase capacity. We can only do that thanks to donors. So we'd really appreciate it if you help us out. And we thank donors by giving them these bonus podcasts. We are not selling podcasts. These podcasts are our thank you gift to those who support the show. If you can do that, I know not everyone can, but if you can, if you enjoy the show we put out week after week and just think about throwing us 50 cents an episode, that'll get you a whole lot of bonus podcasts. So thank you for listening. Thank you for your support. And until next time, Rutabaga! happening to Oswalds is only going to happen again. It's a question of when and where. Thank you for listening to this bonus now playing Sinister movie review. It's aesthetic observance of violence. We hope you've enjoyed the show. I just want to see you enjoying your work again. When you're happy, we're all happy. Now Playing is a podcast with no sponsors or ads. We rely on listener support to keep reviewing movies week after week. I promise it's worth it. And right now, through December 31st, 2016, if you donate to Now Playing, you can get over 15 bonus horror movie reviews. The movies make the dreams go away. Once you watch them all, you never have a bad dream again. For real? Swear. Hear reviews of all films in the Fly and Reanimator series, plus reviews of eight horror classics from 1986. The Hitcher, House, Chopping Mall, April Fool's Day, Vamp, Deadly Friend, Trick or Treat, and From Beyond. What is he paying you? I don't have a lot, but I, I will pay you what I have. Find details on how to donate by clicking the banner at the top of nowplayingpodcast.com. Every minute that we're here, we're a minute closer to that happy ending that we always dreamed of. We're almost there. Now Playing's Sinister Retrospective Series is edited by Arnie. Dude, headphones. You're gonna go deaf! Now Playing Credit Narration by Brock. Speak only when spoken to and tell you what he asks us. Now Playing is not affiliated with Blumhouse Productions, Summit Entertainment, or any of the makers or copyright holders of the Sinister films. These movies are the intellectual property of those companies, and no infringement is intended. We don't have any legal authority to be here. We called our bluff. The opinions expressed in Now Playing are those of the individual hosts, and may not reflect the opinion of Venganza Media Incorporated. Do I believe things that you're talking about exist? Yes. And I believe they exist to lure men like you into them. Stay out of it, whatever it is. Now playing as a Vinganza Media Production, copyright 2016, all rights reserved, and no part of this show may be reproduced, repurposed, or redistributed without the written permission of Vinganza Media Incorporated. Am I making myself perfectly fucking clear? I won't watch any more movies. I don't want to be like you. That's fine. You did what we needed you to do. What? They weren't really meant for you anyway.
to remind you if you enjoy the show we do and these bonus shows we love to put out, you can hear eight plus five plus three, 16 bonus horror movie reviews. I hate his main name. Uh, Etherson. Ellison. Ellison. Ellison, I know. As he has two fucking last names, Ellison Oswald. Just call him Ellis. Ellis. I mean, that would have been so much more helpful, but oh well. When I've said similar things to my wife, and she goes, you know, what about me? What about your children? You know, she in this case, it's your children are your legacy. I think you have that, children. No, I'm I'm just talking about the movie. I'm, I'm okay. It was, I was learning things. <laughs> <laughs> what about your children? <laughs> You really don't spend enough time with them. <laughs> this is the first time hearing them. When, when they're old enough to edit podcasts, I'll give them attention. <laughs> but so Jacob, Jacob. <laughs> so Brock, <laughs> Marjorie. Yes, Jerry. <laughs> what did Marjorie think of this? Um, she actually. Because I was cramming them in in the weekend, she had to work yesterday, so uh, I, I told her, you know, yeah, you could watch it, it's on the Apple TV now, but it's, you know, not drop everything and do. She said she's seen half of it, and she cannot remember how. She's like, yeah, it's Ethan Hawke in a like, haunted house, right? I'm like, yeah, but do you remember the end? No, I guess I never saw the end, <laughs> so. Gotta watch the end. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I, I just want to say I liked Insidious too, but this one is much stronger for being darker. We didn't give Insidious and Conjuring all red arrows. I liked Insidious too as well, but <laughs> I don't know how. Well, you said you liked Insidious too. No, I didn't. You just said as well. I like Insidious T O O. You like Insidious T W O. That movie's horrible. <laughs> Uh, the sound clip will play the same either way. It's true. I'm sorry. People know I did not like Insidious Chapter 2. It'll make people go to the archives and be like, Stuart liked Insidious 2? What the fuck is that? No. I'll clarify it in the bloopers. <laughs>